G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Elizabeth was the principal researcher and writer for the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission for seven years. These days she works independently, but she's also an adjunct research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at the Melbourne School of Theology. She's the author of a book called Turn Back the Battle. And she's also Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. Elizabeth Kendall, always good talking to you. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome back to 2020. Oh, thank you, Neil. Elizabeth, there's a lot of things to talk about, and I've been promoting ahead of time some of the issues that we'll discuss uh, in Europe and in Iran and the things that are happening in Greece and the Middle East. Mm. Uh, but when it comes to the big picture, I mean, some of these things are very disturbing. It's difficult to even get into any detail about the significance of so many things because we're actually constrained by time. How big and how difficult are the issues the world is facing and Christians bear the brunt of levels of persecution perhaps we've never seen. Yes, well, I think people need to realise that uh, the whole world is changing. Things have changed not just in one little place here or one little place there. These are not little side issues. The whole world has changed. So the balance of power in the world. Um, For a long time, we had the Cold War and we had these two empires, the Soviet Empire and the West facing off against each other. All the while, uh, Islam was was growing and reviving. At the end of the Cold War, America came out as the sole superpower, and that took everyone's attention. Most people didn't even realise what was happening with Islam. But now what we're seeing is that the West has really gone into decline, and there's a great power struggle uh, on in the world for uh, hearts and minds, for power and hegemony, playing out in different ways in different areas. There's a lot of people who used to complain about America being the world's policeman and how terrible and arrogant and horrible that was. But I think the day might come when uh, they might miss that very much as they see powers like uh, chi- like communist China and uh, and uh, Shiite revolutionary Iran and uh, other such powers really uh, becoming ascendant and being completely free to do whatever they want to do, and that includes to their Christian populations as well. I guess if we talk about a decline of the West and a rise of the East, where does that sit with the way that Western nations have largely been Uh, shaped by their Christian foundations and we're seeing a decline in perhaps uh, people's level of faith or at least uh, the way that they would be bold and and standing up for their faith. Is there connections here with a decline in Christianity that is contributing to a decline in the West? Oh, I believe absolutely that that is the case. I make that point... um Sorry, in in my book, Turn Back the Battle, there's a chapter there on forgetting God. 
and I look back at uh, the the covenant in Deuteronomy, and God makes the point. He says, He says, you know, when the day comes when all your flocks multiply and your herds multiply and your families multiply and you're you're you know prosperous and secure and everything. Uh, if you forget that you got all these things from the Lord and you start to think that you've done it through your own strength, then in the day you forget the Lord, you will perish. That's Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's a really profound warning. And I read it and I think, boy, this relates to the West because um, it's Christianity that has made Western civilization great. There's some wonderful research that's been done on what Christianity did and how Christianity changed the old Roman world from this, you know, a largely a, a, a filthy and violent, uh, you know, place that was racked with disease and, and was quite heartless. And uh, Christianity civilized the Roman world and civilized Western civilization. And so many of the things that we take for granted, the fact that we have traditionally been able to you know trust our neighbors maybe even go out without locking the door or things like that the people don't realize the degree to that which that is linked to our christianity our christian heritage the fact that we are raised from ch as children to do to others as you would have others do to you and they people think they can get rid of christianity and everything will stay the same well no it's not that's not how it works so what we're seeing is we're seeing the west uh, denying God, embarrassed about God, uh, arrogantly saying, we did this by ourselves, um, and in the day you forget the Lord, you'll perish. And that's not because God sits up in heaven throwing lightning bolts at us in punishment. It's because we don't follow his wisdom and we make foolish, uh, foolish mistakes. Uh, God's word God's law is for our benefit and for our good. It's, it's, a, it's a handbook to life. And if we abandon it, we're just going to end up suffering all the consequences for ignoring all that wisdom. And this is what the West is suffering very much from now. And I guess contributing to that is this idea of apathy that there don't appear to be many who are ready to actually uh, take the bull by the horns and try to make a difference because it's a little bit easier to go shopping or it's a little bit easier to flick on the TV and watch a comedy show. Uh, there's a lot of distractions that keep us from actually pursuing something worthwhile, standing for truth and bringing about any sort of change. Yes, and I think the church has become very flabby. I think I've said this before, very flabby. Uh, has not been exercising, has been spending too much time on the sofa uh, watching the television and so has, is not really exercised and fit in terms of being able to answer even the most basic questions about life. And so the church has increasingly become irrelevant. And uh, now we not only need to, we need to prove our relevance in society all over again. Um, and, you know, I, I watch the news and I think... You know, we're forever putting band-aids on things. You know, there's another problem, you know, domestic violence. So we create a new law for it, and it's just like another band-aid. And there's the ice epidemic, so we create a new law, and another band-aid goes on. And I think, you know, this all gets back right down to the heart of, uh, of humanity, dealing with, with sin and the fact that people are without guidance, they're roaming around in the dark, they're sheep without a shepherd, and, you know, I just... 
long to see the day when the church can actually speak into these issues with real wisdom and grace and authority. Well, Elizabeth, inviting our listeners to be part of our conversation today and opening the talkback lines 1-800-316-316. If you have something to contribute to our conversation today, you might even have a question to ask. You might even uh, stand up and and uh, express some level of exasperation that things are happening the way they are. Lots of things to get through. Let's uh, let's uh, uh, broach a, a few of the issues we want to talk about this hour, Elizabeth, very quickly. Of course, one of those, uh, Iran uh, and six major world powers, that includes the United States and China, the UK, uh, the Russia, France and Germany. Well, they've reached a nuclear deal that caps... Uh, more than a decade of negotiations. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's happened as that new nuclear deal has come to light? Well, it's essentially a capitulation. Now, um, um, the Americans, are, uh, like Obama and Kerry, are saying that they have negotiated from a position of strength and essentially forced Iran to comply. But that's actually, it's really not true. Uh, we're in a situation where Iran is ascendant in the Middle East, uh, seriously ascendant in the Middle East. Uh, its, uh, its neighbours and its competitors are very, very anxious. Those who feel they are in its sights are extremely anxious. And what Iran wants is to get rid of the sanctions that have shackled its economy. Meanwhile... America is seeking to limit its engagement in the Middle East. It's got other things on its plate. It's got financial issues. It's uh, busy picking fights with Russia and all sorts of other things. And America wants to uh, basically withdraw itself from Middle Eastern uh, conflicts in particular. So this wasn't really negotiating from a position of strength. It was more a position of weakness and desperation where the two sides wanted to come out with something. And uh, Iran wanted its sanctions dropped and, and the US wanted to uh, be able to step back. And that's essentially what's happened. And so Israel and Saudi Arabia especially, are um, they're apoplectic. They're just horrified because the, the Iran today is the same Iran as the Iran of yesterday that was preaching uh, that was expanding into the Middle East, expanding into Sunni, Sunni areas, uh, uh, you know, sponsoring its proxies everywhere in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen, and, uh, and with Hezbollah and in Syria. This is the same uh, Iranian regime that talks about wiping Israel off the face of the earth. Uh, and what, this, what the... Uh, what the agreement will do will actually remove a whole lot of the conditions that had been uh, burdening Iran. Now, Elizabeth, one of the most controversial things that anyone listening to any media will likely hear today is this speculation that Iran already has nuclear weapons. And some of this uh, deal, the nuclear deal with all these nations, uh, might actually not mean too much because the whole idea is, of course, they're trying to limit nuclear weapons. What are your thoughts on whether uh, Iran has nuclear weapons already? Uh, Iran definitely already has nuclear weapons. It's had nuclear weapons for some time. It, uh, Iran purchased nuclear weapons in the 1990s when the Soviet uh, Empire was, and the Russian Federation was falling apart and collapsing. Um, 
because security was down. I mean, people don't realise really how catastrophic the collapse of the Soviet Empire was. You know, the Russian Federation is a federation hundreds of years in the making, uh, much older than the Australian Federation, for example. Now, imagine if the Australian Federation blew apart. You'd have an army that no longer had a country to defend. So you'd your borders would be in unsecure, you'd have massive problems. And it was during that time of chaos, all through Central Asia and uh, parts of, um, of uh, Eastern Europe, that nuclear material became available uh, that could be sold through uh, rogue traders and criminal gangs and all sorts of types. Now, Iran bought nuclear weapons at that time. Also, the issue with Iran is it wants to be able to build its own nuclear weapons. It's already been doing that. There, uh, it's widely believed that one of the um, North Korean nuclear tests, I can't remember when actually, but not all that long ago, was testing an Iranian weapon for the Iranians. Um, that what, what Iran wants to do is to be able to produce many nuclear weapons quickly. So it's to do with the amount of time it takes to produce nuclear weapons that this whole has been the whole issue. Um, I guess it makes yeah. sense to think that perhaps North Korea didn't have uh, the capacity to build its own nuclear weapon, and yet they were testing a nuclear weapon. It, make, it makes sense uh, to assume that it might not have been their weapon they were testing. Well, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if they've got nuclear weapons anyway, but they're closely uh, aligned with Iran. Um, Iran is... The, the principal power in what you might call the axis of resistance, all countries that resist American uh, pressure and interference and influence. Um, and, uh, and North Korea and Iran have worked very closely on these issues. You know, there's also rumours that uh, material has been moved from Pakistan into these, into these other resistance countries. There's a lot of nuclear material out there and for a long time it was very it was not well secured um yeah so it should be unsurprising to people really that iran has nuclear weapons already what it wants what iran wants to do its main aim is to get america an american power out of the middle east and particularly out of the gulf area out of the persian gulf because america still has the world's most powerful navy and that is stationed in the Persian Gulf. You know, there are American naval vessels always patrolling the Persian Gulf, and Iran would like them out. So it's looking primarily for leverage to uh, force the Americans out of the Middle East and out of the Persian Gulf so that they can then advance their own agenda and their own aims unhindered. Well, our talkback line open. You might have your own comments about what's going on in the Middle East, the issues with Iran. Uh, There are a lot of issues to cover today. Let's pick up on another one, Elizabeth. Uh, On the 1st of July, the Chinese government passed a new national security law. And uh, it's full of all sorts of uh, speak that they have in China when it comes to the way that they uh, discuss their laws. But it's really, uh, in your opinion, uh, it actually leads to the idea that there could be an escalation of repression and persecution against Christians. Oh, absolutely, yes. I've been quite concerned about China for quite some time. In the lead-up to the Olympics in 2008, 
the situation in China uh, got gradually more and more um, oppressive, and that was primarily because of the uh, the Olympics. Now, what happened at the same time as the Olympic Games was that we had the great, you know, the global financial crisis that really impacted uh, on the U.S. and um, ripped the teeth out of the International Religious Freedom Act. So a lot of that repression that built up before the Olympics uh, continued, primarily because uh, America no longer had you know, carrots and sticks with which to make its International Religious Freedom Act effective. And we saw um, persecution started um, escalating virtually immediately at that time, in particular in China. Now, when uh, President uh, Xi Jinping came to power, one of the first things he did was consolidate his own power. Uh, The security forces had become so powerful in their own right that he launched an anti-corruption campaign that pretty well got rid of all his real challenges and uh, almost like an an alternative centre of power. What he's doing now is they've brought in this law which uh, is going to be a a tool that will enable them to control just about every area of society. You know, criticism of the government is deemed subversion. Um, it's It's going to be a tool for controlling society. And one reason why this is important is that China is also going in through its own economic downturn And for a long time now, certainly since the 1980s, the Communist Party has got its legitimacy from being able to bring prosperity. If prosperity is no longer going to be, uh, you know, the thing that the Communist Party can can offer, then it has to be able to do something else. It has to protect itself and it has to find another means to legitimise itself. And that is probably going to be its ability to maintain national security. And, of course, there has been a flourishing church in China, uh, many, many tens of millions of Christian believers, but they're a part of either a state church or a part of underground churches. But this new legislation, as far as uh, you're saying, is that groups could be deemed to be cults, and if they are deemed to be a cult or any sort of a threat to the uh, governing authority, then uh, they can be either banished or dealt with harshly by other ways of punishment. That's right. Now, one thing that the law does is it, it, it doesn't really define anything. So it's very short on detail. It doesn't even detail what sort of punishments people should get when, they're, when they've been deemed to have threatened national security. So what you've got is a law that can be applied extremely broadly uh, and punishments can be uh, quite arbitrary. Uh, Article 27 um, says, uh, Article 27 mandates that um, religious groups will not be permitted to uh, behave uh, illegally uh, so as to undermine national security. And we, all th- we might all want to say, well, that sounds very fair, I'm into that. But what they're actually saying is, um, you know, if the government decides that no more than 10 people can meet at a time, then anything bigger than that will be illegal. Uh, anything not meeting without Communist Party approval will be deemed illegal. So you've got a law that can be used as a weapon, you see. And basically, 
in order for a religious activity to be acceptable, it's going to have to be Communist Party compliant. Otherwise, it's going to be labelled a threat to national security, illegal, criminal, cultish, and it will be shut down. So I think we're heading into some, uh, some darker days ahead. We're returning to, I think, a much more repressive era. Okay, there's so much to talk about. We'll come back and we'll talk some more about China. There's other issues in Europe and the idea that the EU is a form of a a modern-day Tower of Babel. Uh, Explain what you mean when you describe Europe like that. Yes, well, that's 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 the case I make in uh, Turn Back the Battle. And there's a chapter in there, uh, Christian security is not found in the city of man. And uh, looks at the um, the uh, evolution of cities where they came from, and then the the projects that cities use to uh, basically to um, create communal solidarity and harmony. So Babel was a, a fractious, you know, area. Uh, the, the people were essentially tribal in clans. There was constant friction, and someone had a great idea to stop all this friction and infighting. And they said, come, let us build, right, Genesis chapter 11. And they decided that they would uh, establish a building project uh, that would encourage everyone from all these fractious clans and tribes to come and work together. And as long as people could be working together, then they wouldn't fight with each other. That's how the theory goes. And the idea was that they would build this tower. The tower is actually insignificant, But the thing is, they would work together on this project, which just so happened to be a tower. And uh, in the end, they would have created this harmonious society and they could look at the tower and say, this is what we did. We created this. And from that, they they don't need God to have peace. This is the point. They can do all this. They can create harmony and peace and brotherly love all without God. They don't need God. It's a spiritually rebellious project right from the beginning. And God, God knows that our problem is sin uh, and that we need to be cleansed from sin. We need to be forgiven. We need to have our sin washed away. Otherwise, we are lost uh, for eternity. So God can't let us, or he won't let us because he loves us. He won't let us uh, rest in this idea that we can save ourselves just by cooperating with each other. So God stepped into Babel and confused the project so that it couldn't be completed. It, it was as simple as that. And it couldn't, it couldn't trick people into thinking that they didn't need God. The European Union is actually uh, openly professes to be a new Tower of Babel. They actually have said in their literature that we are going to do what God undid at Babel. We're going to bring all these languages together in this one place. That's in their material. In fact, the European Parliament building in Strasbourg is modelled off an artwork by Bruegel uh, called the Tower of Babel. And you've got this unfinished uh, spiralling tower that was just never finished. And if you look at the at the poster, which features the, the poster of the European uh, Parliament, features that artwork, and the, uh, the European building in Strasbourg, you'll see that it is modelled off that artwork. So it's a very deliberate statement from Europe saying, God intervened in Babel and created all the languages. 
Well, now we're bringing all the languages back together. And um, we're going to undo what God has done. And we're going to show him we can do it without him. So I think, to be honest, for me, I see the European experiment a little bit as something that is destined to fail. Uh, God won't let it actually succeed. It started right at the beginning after World War uh, World War Two, uh, with France and Germany saying, "How do we stop all this fractious infighting amongst European tribes and clans? Come, let us build a common economic market." So, yeah, I think you know there, there's an avenue there for people to cooperate with each other, and it's all really good. But to think that it can actually be the salvation of Europe is a big mistake. It's Neil with you on 2020. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest, and talking about some significant issues that are impacting the world and have a direct impact on Christians. Taking your calls on 1-800-316-316, let's hear from Erica in Mount Nathan in Queensland. Hello, Erica. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. My question is, how is radical Islam impacting on all this what can we do about it okay all these things we're talking about elizabeth kendall radical islam what sort of role is involved and i guess we're talking primarily middle east here well radical islam has everything to do with it of course and this is what so many of our media and political uh, players are unwilling to actually uh, confess they're avoiding this topic, uh, deeming it to be politically incorrect and offensive. But until they're prepared to actually uh, deal with this um, this fact, I th- don't think we're going to get very far. Um, you had 1979, we have the Iranian Revolution. We also have um, a great uprising in, in Saudi Arabia that, that uh, creates this pact with the Saudi... Uh, royal family to sponsor the the production of uh, radical literature all around the world. So from 1979, you've got Islam rising uh, and Islamic fundamentalism uh, becoming uh, uh, you know heavy amongst the grassroots masses all over the world. And uh, we are far far behind the game when it comes to Islamic radicalization. So what we're seeing now is really the fruit of it, like the outworking of it. And um, and until until our uh, political leaders and until the media is prepared to talk about this, I don't think we're going to make much headway. Erica from Mount Nathan, thanks so much for your call. A question that goes and flows on from that, Elizabeth. Of course, uh, the differences between Shia Islam and Sunni Islam, because uh, Iran is in the Shia uh, camp, uh, what difference does that make, given that there's an internal battle going on within Islam and the rest of the world is drawn into these things? Uh, that's a really huge part of the story. And um, I'm actually working on a book at the moment, which I hope to have published by the end of the year, which will really unpack all this. But um, a lot of people sort of, you know, the Sunnis and the Shias have been fighting each other since 680 uh, AD. So right since the early days of Islam, that was the first big battle, the Battle of Karbala, where um, the Sunnis uh, slaughtered the grandson of Muhammad and and uh, basically sealed their fate, you know, to be uh, implacable enemies from that day onwards. Uh, there are political issues as well as religious issues. But today, in the modern era, there are also uh, wealth issues. So some people will tend to just say, oh, look, 
you know, 80% of all Muslims are Sunnis. So, you know, the Shiites, you know, what can they do? But um, the reason why so, such a large proportion of the world's Muslims are Sunnis is because the Sunnis were nomads and traders who travelled, so they spread Islam, their Islam, Sunni Islam, all around the world, whereas the Shiites uh, tended not to. But in the Middle East, uh, so the, the area that's presently uh, blowing up, the Middle East, it's pretty well 50-50. And the most powerful... Uh, element is Iran. Iran's army uh, dwarfs all the Arab armies put together. It's it's huge. It's um it's organised. The Iranian Revolutionary Guards are f- incredibly organised. No one organises militant groups and proxies like the Iranians do. They're incredibly powerful. So and in the Middle East, the numbers of Sunnis to Shiites are about fifty fifty. If you go in even closer. And look at the Persian Gulf, which is where all the oil is. All the oil is around the Persian Gulf, and in that area, it's 80% Shiite. So the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, it's governed by the House of al-Saud, but it's majority Shiite uh, population. And the Shiites are massively repressed and persecuted there, but if... If, if the Shiites ever rose up and Iran came in and helped them and seized that territory, the House of Saud would be back in the desert, you know, with its camels. It's, these are huge stakes. And these powers are fighting. They're fighting more for, not, not just for little things, they're fighting for the wealth of the Middle East and they're fighting for, for, the, for the hearts and minds of Muslims all around the world, for the right to, to be seen as the leader of the world's Muslims. So the stakes are enormous. Okay, let's take another call. one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. if you'd like to be part of our conversation. John from Wangaratta in Victoria. Hello, John. Welcome along. Well, thanks, Neil. Uh, look, the question I've got for Elizabeth is, um, is the relationship between China and Australia uh, where... China's now being so influential with um, being so um, our biggest iron ore purchaser, uh, coal, etc. And now they're buying up a lot of um, Australian properties and homes and uh, uh, just really having a big influence in Australia. And um, uh, <clears throat> what, what effect will that perhaps have on... I'm not sure whether on the Christians in China or Christianity in Australia. Elizabeth? Yes, well, I think um, the days when uh, Western countries were really able to do anything about religious persecution and human rights, those days are pretty well over. Um, There was a decade uh, from, uh, say, 1998... When, the, uh, when America passed its International Religious Freedom Act right through to the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, through that decade, uh, America, American law uh, mandated that if a country was deemed to be a severe persecutor of Christians, then they had to be sanctioned. Uh, sanctions had to be levelled against that country. So that was the law. And uh, that actually made... 
a reasonable difference. I mean, it was politicised, but still it made a difference. And a lot of dictators reigned in the situation at home so that they could get American aid and trade. Now, since the global financial crisis, those days are over. And we see proof of it today by the degree to which human rights are really off the agenda. The Iran nuclear deal. Human rights had nothing to do with it, wasn't even part of the discussion. The, uh, the fact that Americans are in prison in Iran, American citizens, was you know, not even really on the radar. So we're living in an age of, of real politic, where politics is not, not really about moral issues. Uh, there's no leverage for that anymore. Politics is all about money, uh, interests, geopolitical interests, and I... The thing that I feel so, so strongly about is that the church needs to wake up and stop thinking that the world will save the church. Right? So the church in China is going to come into some greater persecution. I believe that in the, in the coming years, possibly fairly quickly, I would, I would think. Um, the Australian government can do very little about it. Um, and they won't want to. They're not going to want to. Uh, stop exporting to, to China and, and send Australia into a financial crisis of our own. The church has to take up this issue. The church has to be so um, active on this issue that it becomes a political issue. The church has to be praying. The church has to be supporting the persecuted church in China and not sitting back expecting that the government will do it because the government probably isn't going to be able to. Thank you, John, from Wangaratta in Victoria, 1-800-316-316. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you. Elizabeth Kendall, religious liberty analyst, is our guest. Elizabeth, I, when I was talking to you yesterday, uh, not on air, but uh, talking about the extent of persecution that's happening around the world, uh, issues to do with the idea that this is the month of Ramadan, where there are a lot of uh, Islamic people who are doing their own deepening of spirituality, and that increases the risk to Christians. Uh, your thoughts very quickly on on Ramadan and and uh, how Christians ought to be praying for brothers and sisters who are under severe persecution in this time because uh, they are at an increased risk. Yeah, that's very, very true. In fact, well, Ramadan ends, I think, Friday or Saturday of this week and uh, it, it's really, the later you get into Ramadan, the more dangerous it is. Um, there's, the, there's the obvious thing that you've got Muslim young men uh, involving themselves in uh, lots of prayer and Quran recitation and reading. Their Islamic zeal is high. They're frustrated to heck with all this, you know, dieting and not being allowed to do anything during, the, during Ramadan. And they're frustrated and they're ready to go out and uh, do jihad. Uh, Muhammad set the example right from the beginning. Uh, Ramadan used to be a month of peace when uh, the caravans could travel unarmed. Uh, Muhammad was losing his followers because they were all going broke so he went out and he took them out and they raided a caravan that was unarmed in the middle of the month of fasting and he had a revelation that said it's better to do this than for the Muslims to go hungry so the the whole, uh, you know, the precedent was set the pattern was established Ramadan is a month of fighting for most Muslims and it does get more violent as the month goes on 
there have been uh, increasing attacks against uh, Kenyans um, uh, inside Somalia against um, uh, e- uh, Ethiopian and Burundian troops. Uh, there was an another, another attempted attack in Nigeria over the weekend, and there's still the threat lingering over the heads of Christians in Jerusalem, and I would say in Gaza as well. Um, uh, ISIS has threatened to uh, kill any Christians still in Jerusalem by the end of Ramadan, so they've been told they have to pack their bags and get out by, before the end of Ramadan or they'll be slaughtered. So. Uh, I'm taking that threat very seriously. Um, the Palestinian Authority has written it off as an Israeli plot. You know, <laughs> but I'm taking it very seriously indeed. Well, some organisations actually keep score on what's happening so far as terror attacks, suicide bombings, the number of deaths and the number of wounded. One of those, and uh, not sure of the reputation, but one organisation, thereligionofpeace.com, has got a scoreboard. They say there's been 269 terror attacks since the start of Ramadan. And that's, uh, that is a score I checked yesterday. Today I checked that same scoreboard. They say there's been 14 more terror attacks overnight. Uh, that sort of figure, I mean, those reliable sorts of figures when people are keeping a score like that because there are a lot of in a lot of organisations that have very, very significant intelligence and able to keep a track of some of these things. What, what are your thoughts on, on keeping scores on those sorts of things? Well, I have, I have issues with all sorts of stati- statistics of any sort. I think they can be really, really difficult sometimes. And I remember years back hearing someone complain about, you know, Christians using statistics that they can't verify and often, you know, they're, it's all to do with definition, you know, like a slap in the face is defined as persecution or someone who gets, you know, hit by a car when a Muslim was driving it. It's all racked up as Christian deaths and you end up with figures that are just, well, what the fellow called them was evangelastics. So it has, it has this elastic quality to it. And sometimes it can be very unhelpful because it actually dents our credibility. If we can't really have, uh, you know, if we can't justify the statistics we're using. So I tend to uh, actually avoid statistics of all sort. And uh, I tend to just speak about the cases that I know about. And it keeps me out of trouble that way. I think uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, It doesn't diminish the fact, though, that as you were saying, in the month of Ramadan, there is an Mm. increased risk to Christian believers because there are a lot of people who are secret believers in nations where it's not legal to be a Christian. And uh, and they've got to actually, uh, you know, go along with what's happening with the fasting Muslim population just to remain in some sense hidden from the yeah. uh, from the dreadful danger that they face if they are exposed as a Christian believer. That's right. It must be a shocking situation to be in. I'm, co- I'm often reminded of uh, the story of Naaman the leper and uh, he comes to believe, you know, the... Um, he comes to believe in God and he asks uh, Elisha, he said, you know, is it all right? He said, when I go back and I have to, you know, support, you know, my my king and I have to go with him into the temple, you know, will God have mercy on me? And, and uh, Elijah says, uh, yes, he will, it's okay. But um, many Christians have to live the same sort of secret existence just to stay alive. And, of course, threats are one thing, actions are another. Uh, Where there's been flyers uh, issued by 
or purportedly issued by uh, Islamic State branch people in Jerusalem to uh, to have Christians uh, get out of any Muslim zones. Uh, there's there's a real threat that could be backed up by action there during this month of Ramadan. Oh, and it would be so easy. I mean, we've seen how easy it is for ISIS to organise a killing uh, in Tunisia. How many how many gunmen did it take to kill forty people on the beach? It took one. <laughs> you know, and and thirty thirty British uh, were killed. Uh, you know, it's not really difficult to incite someone who wants to kill Christians to go out there and do it. And according to the, um, uh, to the brochure, that was the flyer that went out purportedly from ISIS, they were asking for the names and addresses of all Christians living in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem, uh, which is not just a Muslim district. There are famous churches all through this district. Uh, the threat also went out, was also uh, extended to, pretty well, to Christians pretty well anywhere in, uh, in Israel. But, and I'd say that the threat to Christians in Gaza is probably the highest of all. There are no Israeli police in Gaza. Uh, you know, they've all been pulled out. And just um, about 10 days ago, I think it might be, or two weeks ago, um, ISIS staged an enormous terror attack pretty close to the Rafah crossing in Egypt. So in North Sinai, uh, not far from the Rafah border crossing into Gaza, ISIS militants... Uh, sent suicide bombers against 15 military and police posts simultaneously. That was a massive terror attack. And some people fear that this is the beginning of, of, of an attempt to actually break into Gaza. Uh, ISIS has put out a video message to Hamas saying that they will do to Hamas in Gaza exactly what they did to Hamas in Yamuk in Damascus, which is ISIS went in, crushed Hamas and beheaded its leaders. So the threat is very, very real. And if Hamas, if um, ISIS gets into Gaza, uh, the Christians will have, will have no one. I, I really, I'm very, very anxious about this. I think it's a very real threat. Elizabeth, one of the motives that you have for even talking about issues like this is to draw people to an understanding that there is power in in the heavenlies when we're on our knees in the courts of the Lord. How do Christians pray about the circumstances and the situations we've been talking about this hour? Uh, well, let's just start with the Middle East. How do you encourage Christian believers to pray because of these dreadful circumstances facing believers with these uprisings that could potentially be fatal for Christian believers? Well, this is where we can get so much guidance and encouragement from the Scriptures, you know, especially you know, from uh, from much that's in the Old Testament even. You know, people think it's not very relevant today. It's very, very relevant today. You know, we get examples uh, all through the scriptures of God upholding and defending his people, promises that he will defend his people. Now, that doesn't always mean that they're going to be uh, kept alive or kept safe. Many people die. Godly Christians die as martyrs in these sorts of things. But there's still a promise from God that they will not be alone. Just like Stephen, the Apostle Stephen was not alone when he was stoned to death. And he he looked up and he saw the Lord Jesus there before him and and angels surrounding uh, surrounding him, coming for him. And, you know, I think that uh, there's also a promise in Isaiah 
uh, Isaiah chapter 8, there's the promise that if we will just trust the Lord and walk by faith, not by sight, and fear him alone and not other people, then he promises to be with us. And the word used there in Isaiah 8 is the word sanctuary, is the word mikdas. And some modern translations translate that as refuge. He will be our refuge. But that's not actually what the word mikdas means. It means sanctuary as in the sanctuary you find in the Holy of Holies. So the place where God dwells. So if you will trust God, no matter what, you will be in his sanctuary you will be with him and he will be with you in all his glory and we can't even begin to imagine what it might be like to be in that situation but we can know and we can trust that if we are ever in it God will be with us in all his glory and we will know it and we can trust that Christians in that position today if they will trust in God and look to him they will know it too so we pray that Christians will keep their eyes fixed on Jesus because it's very easy not to, to get caught up in the things of the world. I mean, it's a huge distraction and a temptation. So to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus and to trust him and to rest in him. And we pray that God will confound the way of the wicked. That's, uh, that's from the Psalms. There's all sorts of wonderful uh, you know, things that we can pray from the scriptures. And um, and so when I write my prayer bulletins every week, I try to always justify my prayer requests uh, from the scriptures because that gives us real confidence that we're, that we're asking according to the will of God and praying in a way that pleases the Lord. And of course, here we are in Australia, the land down under, and this false feeling of being safely removed from all of these conflicts we have been talking about, but... Uh, just because we might feel as though we are safely removed and going on with our life as normal doesn't diminish the responsibility upon us as Christian believers to be concerned, to be prayerful, even supportive in practical ways of people who are undergoing these issues around the world. Well, that's right. We are all part of one body. We are part of the body. And uh, we are encouraged in the scriptures to, um, to uh, care for those who are mistreated because we are also in the body with them. We are one body and we are one body in Christ. And so Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brethren, you did for me. And whatever you did not do for the least of these, my children, you did not do for me. I, I find that, oh boy, that really impacts me that, you know... Um, when when I decide I don't want to help Christians, I'm deciding not to help the Lord. And and uh, when I give for the displaced uh, Assyrians, I am giving to the Lord. I am putting clothes on his bare back and I am feeding him. You know, I think it's a very, very powerful image. I, I find that very moving, actually. Elizabeth, we run out of time. I'll encourage listeners to Google Elizabeth Kendall and you'll be able to access the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. You'll be able to find out how you can get a hold of Elizabeth's book, Turn Back the Battle. You'll be able to also find out about Christian Faith and Freedom. That's a Christian advocacy organization for persecuted believers. Elizabeth Kendall, always good talking. Thanks so much for being with us again today on 2020. Thanks for having me, Neil. 
Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.